book of Luke, whereas you don't have that occasion in a much longer book of Genesis. The reason being is Genesis is long narratives and long ideas, and you can't break them apart uh, very easily. Uh, And so therefore, we have to cover large sections to get the flavor and the feeling for what is happening here. This particular message titled Anchored in Eternity, there's a couple other names I could have used for it, but I think this is fitting here, as we come to the death of Joseph, excuse me, the death of Jacob, is what we're covering in this text. Last week, we, the main thrust of the text was that Jacob said, do not take me back, do not let me be buried in Egypt. Take me back to Canaan. Take me back to the promised land. Jacob is forward-looking. He is promise-believing. He is hopeful in all that God is doing, even though he will not see it in his lifetime here. We will pick up on somewhat of that theme in this particular set of texts as he is very forward-looking. He is on his deathbed, but looking to God's promises, talking about blessings and whatnot. So, Genesis chapter 48, verse 21 and 22 says this, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your fathers. And I will give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Genesis chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Gather together that I might tell you what will befall you in these last days. Assemble together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. These are the blessings that he will give to his sons. We recall last week that Ephraim and Manasseh received the blessings that were due for others. But now it is the sons have been brought forth. It is the final words of a man that is going to his grave. It is the final words of a man that is casting off the mortal coil and heading into the arms of the Lord, trusting in those promises that have been given. These blessings will show not only what Jacob believes about God, but about the surety and hope that he has in the promises of the Lord. Think for a moment of all the trials and tribulations that have led to this second to last chapter in the book of Genesis. Think about all the things that had happened. Think about the ups and downs that had occurred. And these are the final words that he has for his sons. And they're the final words that will demonstrate what he knows about the Lord. If we think back to this historical narrative too, that at any given moment it seemed that God's redemptive plan was in danger of failing. At any given moment that seed that was to come from the woman was 
uh, at any moment was going to be derailed, was going to be covered up, was going to be buried, was was at the brink of failure at any given time. But much like when we see these blockbuster movies, when all seems to be lost, that heroic nature of the story is God's sovereignty. We'll always see his plan through. And he will do it through the trials and tribulations of men. In the faultiness of men and women, he will bring it to pass. His sovereignty shines brightly even when that redemptive plan seems to be fading or grown over or even non-existent. We couldn't help but think about Joseph in the, in the cavernous bowels of a prison. Where was his hope at? How much hope did he have? Sometimes seemingly fading at any given moment. Yet, God was with him. I remember the message that Roy gave about that. God was with him through all those things. For Jacob, as he's about to give these blessings, it is intimately clear that the promise of redemption is not only true, but will come to pass. His words are set in eternity and will tell the truth about what is going on. And not only is that path of redemption set in place, but it runs right through his family. The patriarch on his deathbed and Jacob knows that the blessings he is going to give them are the blessings that will reach to the consummation at the end of the age because he trusts in the Lord. You see, that's the nature of blessings. They are the forerunners of things to come. They show that there is a trust in the more that is coming, even if, they do not, if, even if he does not see the full outcome of it, or we do not see the full outcome of it here. That all, that all things, not the blessings either, they do not end at the grave. God's promises do not fail at the grave of men. This is why these final words of Jacob are so important. We would understand as we go into the blessings, and it would be Reuben first, that these blessings are not necessarily temporally limited to the time frame right in front of them. They're not limited to the immediate future, but will ring into eternity. These blessings that are here have that shadowy touch of the coming of the Messiah, even though it will be generation upon generation upon millennia before Messiah comes. To a degree, what we find in these blessings are a summation of the history that will play out until he returns for a second time. It is the foretelling of things that will come to pass. It is 
the story of the redemptive plan that Jacob knows will not end in Egypt. Think about this for a moment. The entirety of the family to which the promise was given of a new land is not living in that land. They are living in Egypt. And guess what? 400 years will pass on top of this. But Jacob knows it will not end in Egypt. We could then consider that Jacob's blessings are the entryway or the grand opening into that foyer of a giant mansion that is the redemptive plan of God through history. As we come here at the end of Genesis, we see it, it will open up for us and we'll see those threads that become like highways through the rest of the scripture that will lead to Jesus. I do admit that at some points it does seem rather clouded about the future, yet clearly when we hit the blessings of Judah, we will see it as a shining star before us. So to assist with this, uh, with the information that we get here, I'm going to do something that is probably technically uh, is not uh, the preferable way to do it with every text, but because of the layout here, we're going to deal with the blessings of the minor brothers, and then we're going to come back and look at Judah and Joseph. And then we're going to get, then we'll finish out with the depth the death of Jacob. So we want to keep that in mind as we look here. Just a couple other things of housekeeping with regard to the way this is laid out. Uh, the blessings are given according to the mothers of the sons. Leah, Bilhah, Zilpah, and Rachel. The further breakdown would be blessings to the sons of the true wife, Leah, in the beginning, then it's going to be the two handmaidens or concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. And then it will be the blessings to the sons of Rachel at the end is how it's broken out. But as we now, as we pick up now, it says, I'll reread in verse 2, Assemble together and hear, O sons of Jacob. So they're all there. All of the sons are there before or at their father's deathbed. Each one will hear the blessings that are given to the others. And it says, and listen to Israel, your father. Verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might in the beginning of my vigor, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in strength. This is his firstborn son, the one who would receive it all. Well, we already got the pre-story on that with Ephraim and Manasseh last week. He is the one who should be the one that receives the inheritance, that receives the preeminence and leadership of the family, but we know that is not what happens. He is the firstborn who should receive double the inheritance too, but we know that it did not happen because of last week. He leads in with these verses, and it sounds so good, and they're all listening. And then, verse 4, uncontrolled as water. You are a wild man. You have no self-control. 
Everything you do is emotive in nature, how you react, and because of that, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. We recall how he went to his father's concubine, Bilhah. Genesis chapter 35, verse 22. You can turn there just for a moment, just as a reminder. Genesis 35, 22. And it just says very bluntly, Now it happened while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. And if you recall from that particular passage, when we preached through that or exposited that, that was all that was said about the incident. Well, here's how it plays out. You get nothing. Those things that you were to have because of your uncontrolled nature, because of your lack of self-control, have gone to the sons of Joseph. The tribe of Reuben will become a divided tribe. Judges chapter 5, 15 and 16 told us that. And then notice how it says, it says, then you defiled it, the father's bed, and he changes to the third person as he speaks the next line, almost as if he is giving the blessing to Reuben, and then he turns to the rest that are there and says, he went up to my couch. He is shutting the door on true good blessings that, are come, that, that should be coming to him. He is closing that avenue to Reuben, the firstborn who should be in that position and now is not. Next. Simeon and Levi are brothers. The only two brothers that are dealt with together in this blessing passage. And we'll see why they were in what he says about them. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because of their anger, they killed men. And in their self-will, they hamstrung oxen. Now we recall this was when they murdered the entire city of Shechem for the rape of Dinah. That is Genesis chapter 34, verses 25 through 29. You'll find that. Because of what they did there, and he says in verse 7, Cursed be their anger, for it is, a, for it is strong and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them among Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon will be of no renown at all amongst the tribes. Yet we do note that Levi is given some honor because they become, they will never own land, but the tribe of Levi will be that from which the priests come from. You can find more about that in Joshua chapter 21 would be a good place to start. Now next up is Judah. I'm going to skip that for the moment. We're going to come back to Judah. 
If you would jump down to verse 13, Zebulun will dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a shore for ships, and his flank shall be toward Sidon. He would grow in the sea trade. It's all that he's saying there. Look at Joshua chapter 19. Turn to Joshua chapter 19. Joshua chapter 19, verses 10 and 11. Now the third lot came up for the sons of Zebulun, according to their families, and the territory of their inheritance was as far as Sarid. Then the border went up to the west into Maharala. It then reached Dabansheth and reached the brook that is before Jachneum. Now I give this to you for a couple reasons. The most important is if we think back to the title of the message, Anchored in Eternity, what we find is that these things are playing out long after the players themselves who received the blessings are dead. These sons have been gone for 400 plus years. And yet here, we have them mentioned, for example. Issachar would be the next one back to Genesis chapter 49. Back to Genesis chapter 49, verse 14. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. And he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Merely saying that because he was nothing to look at, he was of lack of renown, he would be forced into, into slaved labor is all it is saying there. Now, I know what you're thinking. These, some of these blessings don't sound like blessings at all. Yet he is foretelling what will happen to them, trusting in what God has told him. And then we drive into verse 16. Dan shall render justice to his people. As one of the tribes of Israel, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. Justice for his people, and we wonder what does it mean about, as one of those tribes, what does it mean the serpent on the way, the idea that he is a problem for those who bring about problems for the tribes of Israel. He is the one that seeks justice. He is like that small snake. It is not the same word, the nahas that is used for the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. It is specifically speaking of a small viper is what it is. It is a problem for them. For those that would lack justice, for those that would come against the tribes of Israel, that he will be a problem for them. They would, however, be beset with a problem themselves in the time of the judges. They would be first known for their practice of idolatry. Judges chapter 18, verse 30. Nephtali comes next, or excuse me, before we get to Nephtali. Verse 18 and 19, I jumped ahead, I apologize for that. 
I, in fact, I jumped ahead of Asher. The verse 18 for your salvation, I hope, O Yahweh, this lands right about in the middle of the text where in part of the blessings that Jacob is talking about the salvation that he trusts in the Lord, right? That is where he is focused on, his trust in the salvation of the Lord that is there. And then he picks up for Gad in verse 19. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. They would be attacked but he would retaliate. Their tribes would retaliate. First Chronicles chapter 5, 18 and 19 would tell us about that. Asher in verse 20, as for Asher, his food shall be rich and he will yield royal dainties. He will settle along the northern fertile coast of Canaan and would be known for providing rich food. Then Naphtali in 21 is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. He would be a free people of the mountain. Judges chapter 5, verses 18b. A simple blessing that is given to him. Then Joseph comes up, 22 and 26. First son of Rachel. And we're going to skip that for the moment and go to Benjamin. In verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey, and in the evening, he divides the spoil. His tribe that we know from the end of Judges, verse 20, is a tribe that is filled with violence and cruelty. And where do we get a famous Benjamite from? Saul. The first kings who stood taller than all the others in all the other Jews, stood at least a foot or more taller than all the other Jews. He was a Benjamite. Now, back to Judah. Judah, verse 8. This is some of the most important verses that we have here in this particular text. Judah, as for you, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Blessings within blessings that are coming here. This five-verse benediction that we see uh, that is before us here, Judah himself and Joseph are the only ones that are given five verses each to describe their blessing. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, would say that this particular one, as we start into Judah, would be a miniature of the Bible scheme of history. It is certainly prophetic to the extent that it points to the consummation found in the Messiah. This interaction that we just read with his family and his brothers that they will pre praise him, he shall defeat his enemies. It shows how Judah will reign over his brother. And even that word for praise is a play on the Hebrew name Judah. Genesis chapter 29, verse 35, 
tells us about the birth of Judah. It says, And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise Yahweh. Therefore she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Unlike the previous three brothers, the blessing that has come here is so much greater, is so much longer in, in its obviousness of where it points to. So much more enriching. A verse that points to so much more, and it continues in verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him up? Three different Hebraic terms for lion are used in this particular verse. It is to give the idea of strength that it will be in the tribe of Judah. He will be that line of strength through, the, through the, this particular son of Jacob. It shows courage, strength, boldness. The lion is the sign of the warrior, and that would be found through the Davidic line. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1. Proverbs 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when there is no one pursuing, but the righteous are secure as a lion. The righteous are secure as a lion. Furthermore, Judah is seen as that lion of the tribe. Seen as that lion of the tribe. The New Testament will speak that the lamb itself is greater than the lion. The lamb itself is greater than the lion. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. Revelation 5, verse 5 and 6. This is how these blessings are ringing into eternity that are anchored deep in deep time, that are anchored far beyond the deathbed that, is, that we're sitting at, that we're all standing around, that we're hearing from right now. Verses 5 of Verse 5 of Revelation chapter 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. Notice how that seemingly, that lion image is the top position, but now it'll be taken over when it says, Then I saw in the midst of the throne the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. We understand this passage as the fuller sense of the passage from Genesis chapter 49. We get a deeper understanding because we have the whole book. We can look back and see the linkage that occurs. We can see things that were never given to Jacob. But Jacob 
trusted in the promises of the Lord. We see the fullness of the redemptive story in John's apocalypse. This is a foretelling of what is to come. Verse 10 of chapter 49, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Notice how the ideas that are found here in Judah are very long speaking, as I mentioned before, in deep time, also very spiritual in nature. This idea of ruling that is given here well beyond the life of Jacob, well beyond the life of Judah, the idea of the ruler's staff from between his feet is that many lines will come from his, his, his seed that is there. It is a permanent reign that runs into eternity that we see that is being foretold here. And then we run into the most difficult part of all the blessings until Shiloh comes. The only mention here in the scripture, it is unclear what this means. Do enough reading and you will find many different, many different interpretations of what until Shiloh comes. One thing it probably does not mean, it does, probably does not mean the city of Shiloh. But the meaning is very unclear, uh, what has happened here. And we cannot hang too many rings upon it and say that's absolutely what it means because people are divided highly over what it means. But what is clear is how he continues to speak until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. This is one that, the, that will reign over even those who are foreign. That those that are not from the same lineage, he will reign over. Now think about this as we look forward, forthtelling for what it means. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. Then comes the end. Now this is at the very, this is the end of where Paul has given the gospel. In the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, it says, then comes the end, when, the, when he hands the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Of course, that also reminds us that Revelation 5 passage when we see the Lion of Judah there. So we see these things that are, that are wrought into eternity, that are fixed and focused in eternity, that are sure in eternity, that are, that are sure hope in eternity. And then verse 11 in chapter 49 says, He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dark from wine, his teeth are white from milk. 
This is the picture of great abundance that comes from the rule that comes from the line of Judah. So much so that they are literally washing their clothes in wine. That they are so over in abundance that the, that the foal and the donkey itself are just tied to the vines. They are shown as not even working. That there is so much abundance that comes from this line of leadership. And then we see that at the end. The consummation of Christ who is from the line of Judah. We see that as playing out through history. I doubt that Jacob could see that far. But I do know that Jacob knows it now. As soon as he passed from this life to the next. Those pictures of donkeys, you know, Zechariah 9. Behold, your king is coming. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, lowly and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a pack animal. Matthew 21, 7. And brought the donkey and the colt and laid their garments on them. And he, Jesus, sat on the garments. Those imagery, that imagery of wine and milk shows the blessedness that comes from the Messiah. Psalm chapter 45, just a few verses of Psalm chapter 45, starting in the beginning. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful scribe. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you, what? Forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously. You can see the prophetic nature of this psalm. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, let your right hand, let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of joy above your companions. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory places, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. These prophetic words, these things that, that, that harken back to this blessing that was given, that harken back to donkeys that are tied to the vine, that are harken back to washing your clothes in wine, which is even unthinkable at this time. The teeth that are white from milk, it is a rain of abundance that comes from the line of Judah. It is that rain that plays out in heaven where we see the river of living water that comes from the throne and the tree of life that grows over it. It is the one where death is done, where there is true abundance and there's no sadness, no jealousy, no hatred where there is the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the glory that is seen, where in this abundance that is found in heaven and then the new earth, the new heaven and the new earth, faith and hope are gone because we will see as with our eyes what truly is. So we have these pictures into eternity that are there and then we drive into Joseph in verse 20, 22. 
Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over the wall. So now, whereas we had great spiritual long-term depth that we saw in Judah, now we see more of those land and progenity pictures that are happening here with Joseph. And the archers bitterly attacked him, and they shot at him, and they bore a grudge against him. Now we have studied this, and it is obvious what we see here. Joseph, as that fruitful bough, when he was being shot at by the archers and attacked, that is, a, that is an homage to the brothers who came after him. Also to those things that would have happened when he was falsely accused. Yet he is fruitful. Yet he is so fruitful like this that the walls of the kingdom don't even hold him in. They run over the vines of his branches, run over those walls and spread out. Consider those words for a moment. Do you remember about Rachel? Do you remember what her issue was? She was barren. And then she had Joseph. And now look from that barren woman how it is springing forth. The exact opposite of what we would think and how we would plan things out is what God is doing. It would be the most fruitful tribe in spite of the fact of his brothers, in spite of the fact of being lied about. Verse 24, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From the God of your father who helps you and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the top of the head of the one distinguished among the brothers." Deuteronomy 33.16 says, And with the choice things of the earth in its fullness and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush, let it come to the head of Joseph and to the top of the head of the one distinguished among the brothers. In these verses, as we talk about the blessings of the brothers, look at verse 28 of chapter 49. And all these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them. So he blessed them, he blessed them, everyone, with, what is this? With the blessing appropriate to him, with the blessing appropriate to each one. None out of place, none given wrongly, much like last week when we saw Manasseh and Ephraim with the crossed hands, given rightly, given appropriately, and given in place, and at a time when it was necessary. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Mechpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham 
bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there, they buried, there I buried Leah. Notice how specific he is being about his burial place set firmly in the promised land. The only piece of property that they owned You must take me back there and bury me where our ancestors are at. My ancestors who, and your ancestors, who trusted in the promises of the promised land. You must take me back there. They trusted in the promises, and they died, and they were buried there, and that's where I'll be buried, because I know that the Lord will come through with his promises, because they are anchored in eternity unchanging. Thirty-two, the field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. So Jacob finished commanding his sons. He drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. 147 years old. Forth telling the blessings that would come. This man who had wrestled with the Lord. He's given the blessings. He's told them where he wanted to be buried. All along, you see throughout this is a trusting in the promises of the Lord. The things that he was told he is trusting in, even though he will not see them. To take him back to Canaan is showing that they trusted that Joseph and the sons will trust in the promises of the Lord too. And we remember from Exodus that Joseph will be buried in Egypt and then Moses will bring his bones back to what? The promised land. Fifty, verse 1, then Joseph fell on his father's face, wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Then the 40 days to do this were fulfilled. Because in this matter, manner, the days of embalming are fulfilled. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. Two less days than they would weep for Pharaoh. This shows how this father of Joseph was viewed in Egypt, in a land of pagans. How they honored him in his death. Again, I will say it, God has made the body. I think we should treat it well when we die. I think we should treat it well when we die. God buried Moses. I'm just going to say, that's how much care he had for that which he created, even though the soul had left. We see this here, that they are, they are, they are mourning with Joseph and the brothers. And then in verse 4, Then the days of weeping for him were past, and Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I'm about to die in my grave, which I dug myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. So now please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh said 
to him, go up and bury your father as he has made you swear. So Joseph went to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very immense, a very immense camp. This is quite a foray into the land of Canaan to bury the father in what will be the promised land. And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they lamented there with a very great and immense lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. Now the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, and they said, this is an immense mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizrim, which is beyond the Jordan. This place of mourning that is here, this place of Egyptian mourning, uh, would be the, a general translation that we find there. In verse 12, now notice they don't, the people of Canaan don't notice the difference between the Israelites and Egyptians. They just know they came from Egypt and that's what they see them as. Verse 12, thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. Indeed, his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Mechpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had brought, bought along with the field for his possession as a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. An act of trust when they go to bury him, an act of believing what the Lord has promised to do what they did there, an act of believing the blessings that had come, the act of looking as Joseph has done as understanding the ladder that reaches from heaven to earth, that it is a God that is active in his creation, that it is a God that is bringing about that plan of redemption is what we see here in trusting in what the Lord is doing even if it exceeds the time period of my life. Even if it goes well beyond my lifespan, trusting in the promises of the Lord, going to the final breath, trusting that the Lord saves. We as Christians should die good deaths. We as Christians should die confidently in the promises of the Lord, trusting in what he is bringing to pass. What do we see here? We see blessings, even negative blessings, plenty of those within the sons there. Certainly there are things that will follow man to the end of their days on this earth. Sometimes we have penance to pay for those mistakes that we've made. Sometimes you're caught for stealing and you end up in prison. Sometimes you've stolen a lot and you don't. But that's not what the point is here. 
these things that men do do not thwart God's plan. Murdering entire cities in Shechem, for example, did not thwart God's redemptive plan. Casting the brother of Joseph, casting the brothers casting Joseph into the pit to be sold into slavery did not thwart the plans of God. Judah not being the firstborn did not thwart the plans of God that that would be through the line of which Jesus would come. These things that we view as missteps and mistakes did not thwart God's plans. There is no, uh, there is no restarts or rehashes or going back to the beginning and starting over again with God. There is one plan and one plan only. And you're part of it as a Christ follower. The promises do not stop with regard to what men do. The promises do not stop regardless of our deaths. The promises were written long ago into eternity. And from God's vantage point, they are seen as completed. I only need to point to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. That you as Christ followers are already seen as seated in heaven. That's the viewpoint that God has. Once truly saved, always saved. Regardless of sons and what they do, their false testimonies, regardless of living in a pagan land, these things did not hold back the promises of God. And when the time was right, God's timing is absolute and absolutely perfect when the time was right, Galatians 4, chapter 4, verse 7, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I look back through these blessings, these promises that I see, and I see the fruition in Christ Jesus. It all points to Jesus. It all points to the Lion of the tribe of Judah, to the Lamb who stands as if slain in the throne room. Christ was not born two minutes too late or one second too early. He was born at the exact right time as had been previously decided, decided. It was the fulfillment of those promises to Judah that were foretelling of the, promises, of the prophecies of the coming Messiah. Perhaps you don't see blessings the way that Jacob did. Perhaps you only see blessings of what happens in the next moment or the next day you don't see the blessings as playing out through the decades or the centuries or the millennia. Certainly we can be excused for that because we live a finite life on a timeline. But I would encourage you to consider the eternal promises of the Lord that he will eternally save you. If you are found abiding in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would ask you to consider these two verses with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. 
verse 8. But God, but God, demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Consider for a moment the promises and blessings that were given that we just read. That there was not the inkling of the necessary sacrificial system that would point to the shadows of Jesus when they were given. Yet they clearly point to the Messiah, the anointed one that is coming. And consider lastly Hebrews Chapter 7. Actually, we're going to consider two sections in Hebrews. Since you're in chapter 7, bump back to verse 19 of chapter 6. This hope we have as an anchor of our soul, a hope both sure and confirmed, and one which enters within the veil. I'm going to tell you right now, I know that Jacob knew this. When he says he's being gathered to his ancestors, he knows that he is passing on to something else, entrusting in promises that go into eternity. You know why? Because God told him. You know why we know it? Because God tells us. And then verse 25 of chapter 7, verse 25 of chapter 7 Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I would ask that you consider these passages, that they are a blessing. This is a blessing, by the way, that we have this. This is a blessing that we have, that Christ Jesus came and died while we were yet sinners for us, that he is an anchored firmly and securely anchors our souls in heaven, in that verse 25, he is able to save forever us. I ask that you consider this, regardless of your circumstances, and trust in this as Jacob trusted in it as he breathed his last breath. Let's pray. Glorious and Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, these words of Jacob, the blessings that we read about, sometimes hard to understand what they mean or, or how they fit into us, but what we need to know is that Jesus saves sinners. And I am a sinner. And all that are here are sinners. We ask that they, we trust in the Lord Jesus for our salvation, not our own works. We ask that you are with us through this day, that you give us humility and courage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.